Hey guys, uh, it's Ian Benjamin, Digital Hub, and the spring's here. Uh, today is actually April the 14th, so two days after, a couple of days after the lockdown restrictions have started to be reduced. So the sun's coming out, gyms are open, uh, pubs are open as well, and uh, I've managed to kind of frequent both of them over the last few days. But, uh, but moving on, today, blessed as usual with my guests, um, Sharon Pryor. Sharon Pryor, um, I don't know where to start really, I mean, we're going to go through this in a bit more detail. Sharon Pryor, she is the director, um, digital director for IMI Critical Engineering. Uh, she's been with the company less than a year, and she's driving the whole digital change uh, for, for the company, making them more digitized. And, but beyond that as well, or behind that, um, she's also driving their um, equality, diversity, and inclusion sort of uh, strategy, and she's, she's doing great guns with that. Um, Sharon's born in London, and of a large family, and but look, I'm gonna kind of get into this um, in a bit more detail. You're gonna have a hell of a ride with this podcast today, I can assure you. So anyway, Sharon, how, how are you doing today? How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the wonderful introduction. <laughs> no, <not laughs> I'm at all. excited now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll kind of build you up and build you up. You know? <laughs> but no, no, thanks for um, accepting my invitation to be a guest on Digital Hub. Thanks um, for the invite. No, not at all. I think it's really, really going to be an inspirational listen for um, anyone, male, female, in terms of what they can achieve, not just for women uh, being a female. And um, so, yeah, so definitely superb, superb. So let's kind of, kind of dive into it. So how have you been? What, what have you been up to? I've been great. And as you said, the 14th of April, two days after lockdowns, stage two yes. um, that we're going to come out of. So um, I'm, I've been feeling really great about that. Even Definitely. had my jab as well. So yeah, yeah, me I'm, too. I'm, yeah, I'm one of the guys that really want to get out of um, uh, this pandemic. So totally without a doubt. I think everyone's got to have the jab. It's just my opinion, clearly. Yeah, I'm not trying absolutely. to run it down anyone's throat. But I mean, I think we all got to kind of contribute something to get us out of this global pandemic. So if yeah. it means having a jab, then, you know, just do it. Do you know what I mean? You know? Yeah, I mean, as you saw from my LinkedIn profile, I've worked in a pharmaceutical company. So yes, I'm an advocate of, of pharmaceutical products anyway, um, yeah. if they can help um, people. So, yeah. Superb, superb. I'll give, give a little, what I do typically with the, as you may know, Digital Hub guests, I'm going to give the viewers and listeners a bit of a background in terms of um, what you're about. And one way of doing so is obviously to read a bit of a testimonial um, from, from somebody that you worked with previously. And uh, But just to kind of also set the scene uh, for our viewers and listeners, um, Sharon um, has worked for Midland Bank, and that kind of led, we're going to get into that for a great story, then to the Bank of England, um, Avon is in there as well, GSK, um, you work directly with David Gold and Cam Brady uh, and Summers, I think as yep, well, you know, from an operational <laughs> perspective, that's really, really interesting. Um, Thompson Reuters, um, the post office, I think we worked with Andrew Lewis there as well. And right. that's obviously led to where, you, where you're working now. So it's a great, great story we're going to cover, cover off today. Uh, but yeah, let me kind of give you uh, listeners and viewers a bit of a, um, the testimonial that I've got. So this is from um, Sarah Knott. You work with Sarah at the TSB, I believe. She no, says, at the post office. Sorry, at the post office, sorry. And um, so Sharon was simply one of the best line managers I've ever worked for and I've had to work for. To work for and with her, she's an, it was an incredible privilege. Sharon enabled me to work in a supportive and learning environment by setting clear objectives and working parameters and communicating these unambiguously and allowing me to achieve those objectives without interfering or micromanaging me. However, despite being incredibly busy, she was always available to give valuable guidance, feedback and advice. 
Her comprehensive knowledge of the digital and operations sector is invaluable, as was her pragmatic and in-depth knowledge of business operations and strategy. From day one, I was made to feel a valuable and valued member of her team, and therefore, I also count being a great leader as one of Sharon's many, many skills. So, boom! Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you, know? you, Sarah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's... Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, my, my philosophy on working is it is all about people, you know, whether it's your customers or whether it's your employees. It sure. has to be about people. It's not about products or services or the building. Yeah. And I think if you can motivate and influence people um, and inspire them, um, to do their best and to be their best. Uh, that for me is job done for a leader. 100%. 100%. I mean, I'm a, I'm a recruitment guy, right? I mean, a lot of the people listening or watching know that I'm a recruitment guy. The podcast so is, is second to, the, to what I do. But I mean, so I'm with you 100% in terms of getting the right people, getting the right culture absolutely. within an organisation is absolutely what, what I'm all about. Something that I've kind of like preached for, for you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll continue to preach. Superb. So, so where did it all start for you? Where did it all start? So tell me a bit about, so you grew up in, in North London, is that right? Yes, I'm a um, Tottenham girl, and Spurs supporter. Oh, really? Yeah? You're <laughs> yet. You're yet. Yeah. Um, I um, was um, part of a um, West Indian family, so my parents both came to the UK from Barbados. Uh, right. They came to the UK in the early 60s met married here and then ended up having, um, there were seven of us, I'm the middle child of seven. Well, I remember you saying that, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. So it was it was an incredibly busy, incredibly close family. Um, How many girls? How many girls in all the siblings? There's, there's four girls. Four girls, three boys? Yeah, four girls, three boys, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I have two older sisters and then there's me and then I have a younger sister. But um, yeah, we were incredibly close. And interestingly, you asked about how many girls, but as a girl in that larger family, we were expected to do things that normal girls did. My mom and dad were very traditional in their, in their roles and, and their, their beliefs and expectations of females. And, and right. you know, I think in, to some extent, because I was the middle child, I rebelled against it a bit. You know, I saw how my older sisters were, were treated and I thought, you know, I want to live my own life and I want right. to make so traditional well, in terms of like doing things around the house, the cooking you know, and all the, all the chores, all, all the chores. ironing, all the cleaning, the cooking. <laughs> we were the ones in the kitchen with my mum and with my mum, really. Although my right. dad could cook. Um, but interestingly today, my brothers are terrible cooks you know oh, really? you know, they, they've met my wives that do all it all for them so right, yeah. right. how funny how funny you still kind of get together with the family as well to kind of see yeah, unfortunately, yeah unfortunately dad's passed away um but yeah uh, we we all said when, when we can but we we are spread out i have a brother living in barbados another nice. brother living in germany um and the rest of us are in the uk in oxford and london Right, superb, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, obviously, smaller family. Me and my sister, my two sisters, were raised um, over here in the UK. Um, but yeah, definitely. So it was a lot smaller. But yeah, my mum and dad again, probably similar sort of age. Your parents come over here, sixties, uh, mid sixties or late fifties, and yet one hundred percent very, very traditional. So I, I, I know what you mean. I can imagine what the house I was like, but it was buzzing all the time and lots buzzing. of buzzing. I mean, it's great growing up in a in a really large family because you have that close support network and, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you will have you know, people you can bounce ideas off of and yeah yeah and that's where 
yeah, yeah. So, so, so I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, at the time, you didn't realise it, but I mean, that's a way. What a great way to kind of shape you as a yeah. person. Do you know what I mean? You know? A lot, a lot of my values, a lot of my beliefs were formed at the dinner table. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we we debated a lot. You yeah. know, my dad encouraged us all to have you know, our own opinions. And one of his key um, values for us is that when we went to bed at night, we had to go learning something we didn't know when we woke up in the morning. Wow. You know, and, that, and that's that's the way I've lived my life. I'm, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly reading and, you know, looking up new ideas and, you know, being really externally focused on how other people have done things and what's worked, what hasn't. Yeah, 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 fantastic. I bring that into the workplace as well. So, Brilliant. so what, what do you, what did your dad do? What was his, what was his job? Well, well my dad only ever had three jobs in his lifetime um, from coming into the UK. So he started um, on London Transport, right? Um, uh, and then he went to work for the Royal Mail. Okay. And then, when he was made redundant from Royal Mail, he went to work at University College um, Hospital in London. Right, okay, gotcha. As a lab technician. Oh, did you really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's where, okay, that's where the mind comes from then. That's where you've got those, those DNA in the brain cells that you've got, you know. Yeah, he was very intellectual, um, he, although not academically, but he was yeah. a very smart man, yeah. Definitely, maybe he never got the opportunity to kind of like, to maybe expand on that talent that you probably never knew he had in terms of the academic ability that he's got in his, in, you know never had the opportunity well, he faced a lot of obstacles you yeah, know yeah, without doubt, without doubt. Coming, coming to the uk at the time he did yeah, yeah. there was it was limited for oh him. my gosh oh my gosh yeah yeah and that's, that's another podcast we can get into in another time yeah, absolutely definitely so brilliant so what, tell, tell us about i mean i love when i first spoke to you we kind of touched on uh midland bank and what happened yeah. there so yeah Take, take it away. Take it through that yeah. little... Uh... Well, for those of our listeners here who don't know who Midland Bank are... Of course. They were, <laughs> they were um, taken over, actually, by HSBC. High Street Bank. Yeah, yeah they were Bank. HSBC. But back in the 70s, 80s, they were they were a, um, a, a well-known banking... Um, High Street, yeah. Yeah. I think I had like a yellow griffin or something on that's the logo. That's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I've still got my payslips from them. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I... Um, literally left school with very, very few qualifications, um, mainly because I didn't go on to higher education. I just left at, at the age of 16, 17, actually 17, I, I left just before um, um, sixth form college. And mm-hmm. um, it was expected of me to leave by my parents because, you know, seven children and money yeah. was very, very tight. So um, I left and went um, and just started temping, went to a temping agency, learned how to type and went and, and started working at uh, Midland Bank in their typing pool. Um, right. so about six other women there. But whilst I was there, it was probably after I'd been there for about six months, you know, I, my, it, I was mind-numbingly bored with the, with the job. I just absolutely hated it. Mundane, but, repetitive mundane maybe repetitive then it wasn't really going anywhere it wasn't teaching me anything really new Mm. and um we had a lot of problems with our um printing server um at the time and back then all of our pcs were networked hardwired networked together um in a a networking solution from a company called novell and um back then the um support service was provided by a third party company 
but they couldn't fix the problem. And we lived with it for weeks and weeks and it was getting really frustrating. So I thought, um, my brother actually worked for Novell at the time. Right. And he said, that, look- that's just a, So that problem was, was, was bottlenecking the seamlessness or the processes of your, your, what you were doing. Well, so my function, like, yeah, oh, yeah. It was a headache and- Yeah, I mean, it was, sim it was very simple computing at the time because back then most of the yeah. computers were mainframes, but yeah. the PCs were really used to spreadsheets and word processing, that was right. it. And okay. all we needed it for was really sharing files and doing month-end reporting and that sort of thing. But it was a problem. It, it, right. We just couldn't get the, the, the systems linked. So I ended up going out buying a book <laughs> on networking um, that was recommended by my brother. And I learned how to troubleshoot the problem. And actually went in and fixed the problem. Amazing, amazing. I, they, I mean, they were blown away by the fact that I was proactive enough to go out and do this. Yeah, but yeah. I had the mindset to be able to do it. And, that's, that's, honestly, that is just unbelievable. So, how long do you know what the book was called? And do you know how long you read it for before you kind of like were? It, it's a, yeah, I can't remember what the book was called, but it was on Novell Networking. It was a certified network engineering book. Right. Um, yeah. And what Midland actually did for me afterwards, they moved me into the IT team um, and they took sent me on a training course to become a certified network engineer. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually did the course, which took me 18 months to complete the course. Um, and I was the first and the only black woman who have ever done it yeah, um, yeah, yeah. at the time um and most of the courses that i went on i was the only woman in the class right but so I was, you, you're working in a day then doing the course at night or how was it done obviously no no it was it, I, I was go, going i was going on courses and um, throughout right. the, you know week-long courses um and they they there was a certain number of modules i'm going back many years now yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't embarrass me i'm going back <laughs> many many years but back then google didn't exist in the way oh, it does so now so, yeah, the only thing you could do is get stacks of books to, to read up. And that's essentially what I did. And right. I think that, that that was really the way I learned new things. And I think from that moment on, I realized that if there's a problem in a business, then I need to find out how to solve that problem. That's how I get on in, in my career. Yeah. And I learned that at, at Midland. Um, well, and that's... That's speaking, I mean, obviously speaking to you um, on a couple of occasions, I mean, that seems like that, that was a catalyst that kind of like kind of helped set the path for you to achieve. It was. It, 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 was it was almost a light bulb moment for me that, you know, I could do it, you know, irrespective of my background, my education, my class, I could do it. Yeah. And just by learning how to solve problems and solving those problems. So um, with that, when I, whilst I was at uh, Midland, I became a, um, an IT um, administrator, which was the next rung up. Yeah. Um, and then after a while, you know, you hit this ceiling because they still always see you as the secretary that made it. So, and I was literally always in rooms full, full of men, um, you know, highly qualified men, highly qualified engineers. Yeah. And I always had that, you know, sin imposter syndrome. And I mm -hmm. knew I needed to start somewhere afresh that yeah. you didn't know my background um, and I could just do it on merit. 
Definitely, definitely. I suppose only only female and of only, only person of colour as well. Maybe there's one or two other black guys, I suppose. But you know, but that's, yeah. that's amazing. Fair play. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and roll forward a couple of roles. I then landed at um, GlaxoSmithKline um, in the early days of GlaxoSmithKline. So they had gone through three mergers whilst I was with them. But it was whilst I was there that I um, embarked on a phenomenal career because I had the most amazing boss who just believed in me, a guy called Mark Elbay, Dr. Mark Elbay. And he just believed in me. He took a shine to me and I was almost like his protege, you know, yeah. and he would coach me and, you know, he was my um, sponsor, my ally in senior meetings and he would always promote me. Um, and I literally moved up through the ranks at, at GSK, um, eventually becoming a, a regional director um, there for IT. So what did you do there? Yeah. Is that where you've done the, the computer science? Yeah, so so they, oh. Blackso also uh, sponsored me to um, do a degree and right. I was blown away. So I did what I thought I should do, which was a computer science degree. Um, but absolutely hated it. You know, I struggled through it. I, I passed, but I literally struggled through it. Right. Like three, then, four years, four years, probably. Yeah, four years. Yeah. Um, and then I was, uh, whilst I was going through it, um, um, my boss, Mark Elbay, said to me, why didn't you study something you love? And I said, well, because people expect me to be working IT and have a, a, a technology degree and he said not necessarily do something you love you'd be a lot more valuable to me if you were you were really <laughs> passionate about it and so I then did a law degree which I absolutely loved yeah. really really loved it and did you do them both side by side no no one after the other right, I did okay. a, yeah one after the other then I left um, GSK um, and then embarked on doing an MBA yeah uh, and then a master of law Wow. So I ended up after leaving school with no qualifications, or apart from my CSEs and O levels, um, I then went on to acquire four degrees. Which that's was, what I mean. That's exactly what I mean in terms of like this story. I think it's an inspiration for for anybody in terms of what they can achieve. And you know, school is just one part of the journey. And yeah. sometimes you don't realise your potential there. And especially you've been in the wrong company or you don't like your teachers or especially right now this whole bloody pandemic that we're going through and the teenagers haven't been able to have the the process um of education from a from an exam perspective that that you and i afforded or any or anyone else did up until 2020 and so it's a different environment and um, yeah yeah, absolutely so it just shows that people, people can do it if you've got that kind of design drive to kind of like... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I learned through doing that. You know, all out, before I did my degrees, all throughout my career, up until that point, I believed I was inferior. I believed there were more intelligent people than me, more highly qualified people than me. And I would sit in a room, you know, look around it and have a chip on my shoulder about it. I mean, I can look back now and really understand it, but I was very defensive. Um, you know, I always felt like I had to prove myself and was never really relaxed. Um, but since doing those degrees, I realized that it's not actually the degree that's the important point. It's what you learn throughout mm. the process. And for me, I think children these days yeah. are taught in such an antiquated way. I mean, if you look back on the history of education, Children sat in a classroom or facing a teacher with a whiteboard. 
that mm. hasn't changed for hundreds of years, yeah, you know, yeah. and yet we've got these technologies and these new, you know, new ways of living mm. that haven't evolved the education system. No. So I, I firmly believe we need to change and scrap our yeah. current education yeah. system. I, th I think, you know, again, COVID is kind of just, you know, definitely should the sort of education system shook it around and tipped it on its head. The, the online learning, I, I agree, it's not for everybody, but I mean, there's elements of what can be done at home and and just maybe the way it's broken down in, in the day to make it more engaging. Um, not just that. I, I think also um, that we need to teach children life skills, you know, how to get on with others, how to have empathy with their peers, how to um, do practical stuff like manage accounts, you know, manage right. their money. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, definitely. You know, what's the it's use of them, them learning chemistry if they're never going to use it, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? Honestly, yeah, absolutely right, absolutely right, definitely. I mean, some, just some, some life skills, values as well. Yeah, values, uh, absolutely. Stuff, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I think there is, I think there is like a, I think it's called peach, PSAT or something like that's taught at school now, where some of those sort of life skills are kind of like introduced, but I mean, um, but, but not to the extent of what, what you're alluding to. And I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, I think it needs a complete radical overhaul. overhaul yeah. Radical overhaul. And you need psychiatrists to get together. You need um, professors to get together, politicians, mm. um, medical professions to get together and think if we were to rewrite a, a way to bring raise children, what would we do? Yeah. And I know it'll be completely different. You yeah, know? definitely. definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe some countries have got that sort of innovative way and, and their children, children are, are excelling. I know that in parts of Europe, um, there's a bit more life school. They've just got a different approach to education. And, um, I think it's like and indigenous, uh, indigenous um, communities as well in, mm. in South America who aren't touched by our um you know our ways of living today they have a completely different way of raising children yeah, you know? yeah and yeah. i think we wouldn't have the problems we have today if we if we looked at this in another story and that yeah that's another, another that's a really good angle you know what i mean I'm really digging sorry I, I get on my soapbox about many things honestly <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, brilliant. So, GSK, and then what was it like working with um, Karen Brady and uh, David Gold? What was that like working with them? Yeah, I didn't work, work directly with Karen. So, Karen um, Brady, at the time when I worked at Dan Summers, Cam Karen was um, the um, uh, CEO for uh, West Ham. Um, right. So, um, David Gold owned West Ham as well as owned and Summers. Um, but we had a number of meetings where I met with Karen. Um, I mean, mainly from a strategic, um, you know, leadership um, um, perspective, where she would give advice around, you know, her career and how she had uh, had progressed and how to deal with certain situations and certain people. So it was quite interesting. Yeah, David, really Gold, interesting. yeah David Gold's a, a, an interesting guy. I mean, you know, he's in his he's in his eighties now. Probably coming up to close to ninety now. Wow. Um, but he he created Anne Summers back in, I think it was 1972. He bought two shops from someone, renamed them Anne Summers after his secretary. 
and um, well, then it was. That that, yeah yeah and and changed the nature of um you know sex toys in the uk yeah, yeah, yeah. um made it put you know moved it onto the high street in in the 80s um, when yeah. his daughters um joined the business so his daughters jacqueline and and um um Oh, I've forgotten her name. <laughs> um, but his, like his, means, yeah, yeah they, they both um, worked, um, literally didn't, haven't worked anywhere else. They've all, always only worked for yeah, David Gold. Um, but it's interesting because it's a business that I would never have imagined work ever working for. But all businesses are about products, services, and selling them to customers. Making money, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm great, great at. I like looking at, you know, how can we improve this business um, irrespective of what the product is? How can we engage better with customers? How can we um, use technology to manage that engagement and to um, enable better um, information sharing with our customers sure definitely yeah is it is it david gold that's got the outside of the elevator when you go up into the office and you open the door of the elevator he's got a photograph of um yeah, he, or something like that the, yeah he he's 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 um so in in our in the office where the um where Anne summer's headquarters is um as you go onto the executive floor as you come out the office uh, the lift elevator he's a picture of his mum and the estate on which he was um, born, right, and it's a, a East, yeah, it's in East London. He, you know, he came from a very poor background, but he does it so that he never forgets where he came from. Even right. though you know he's a multimillionaire, he's very successful in business. He's got, yeah. he's had met numerous amounts of businesses. He uses that as a reminder, and mm. I think it's a really good thing for anyone. To Browning, do. yeah, definitely. That's really very, good. very good grounding. And I, I do exactly the same thing. I, I have memories around my house where, you know, I, I never forget, you know, where I've where I came from. Yeah. Um, and I'm always very, very con conscious of, um, you know, how far you can you can actually come on a journey. But, you know, keep grounded with it. Yeah, 100 percent. I'm, I'm the same with photographs of my, my grandmother and stuff and you know, around the house and. Yeah, definitely. I think my kids are fed up with me talking about my background and how things, how difficult things were for me. And uh, well, it's, you know, they're not plain sailing now, to be honest. But I mean, um, but yeah, definitely. I think you've got to kind of have that. And uh, I think a lot of comes. I think a lot of that comes back to the traditional values of the West Indian or Caribbean um, backgrounds. I mean, you know, just kind of yeah. hard love, as it were, hard love. Yeah. <laughs> no, without doubt. But Karen, so um, Sharon, so in relation to. Um, the, the post office as well. I mean, because I'm assuming from touching on this in the conversation with you, there was like a multi-billion pound project that you that you were involved in that you were involved in there to do around data and IT as well. Is that right? How did that come about? That well, that opportunity. So I joined post office in 2015. It was three years after um, post office had separated from Royal Mail. And as part of that separation, the government gave um, post office a level of investment. Uh, it was 1.8 billion pound investment right, to right. renovate post office over a five year period. And um, so when I joined, I was in year three of the five year transformation. And part of that transformation, a multi-million pound investment for IT transformation, which meant pulling in Grace, basically a greenfield site, new systems, new processes, new 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 um, laptops, 
And when I joined, um, the uh, we had literally eight months to separate, do the final physical separation from Royal Mail. And that meant separate all the data centers, um, all of the um, laptops, equipment, um, all of the services, people, you know. So there was there was quite a lot still left to do by the time I joined. Was that a big team? Was, you part of, was that part of a big team? That sort of it, was, it was part of a huge team, but it was mainly part of a team that was made up of um, vendors, so uh, third-party um, right. suppliers. And we had implemented an um, IT service model that involved five what we call towers and we had five tier one um, suppliers providing services into post office so I had to work with them to to make sure a we got you know all the equipment almost 5,000 laptops and um, distributed across to 346 sites across the UK um, they had to we had to put in office 365 um, and printing connectivity Right. Um, plus all the data had to move, be moved from um, Royal Mail into post office. And by the time I had arrived um, and got hold of the program, um, I realized very quickly we had X amount of data and X amount of time to transfer it. And we didn't have enough time to transfer all wow. the data that we held. So, so is, that, is that a cloud in the cloud, right? What, what, what year was this? 2000 and where? This was in 2015, 2016. So yeah, 2016, right. March was the date of the, the final um, transformation. But yeah, um, yeah so, so all, all the, sorry? Is it a cloud migration like AWS or, or Azure? Yeah. Cloud so the, yeah, it was it was our own um, cloud services from a, a company called Computer Center. Um, so right. they were doing all the hosting for us. Um, in their in their own data centers um so but obviously having to deal with um the royal mail as well as computer center as well as post office and yeah, yeah. people just leaving as well you know during this time because they were taking redundancy packages so there was no continuity of knowledge yeah, yeah, um and to manage a program like that is is quite tough when you're you're literally just thrown in at the deep end with it so you've got no historical information you've got no documentation that exists and you're having to find it all whilst you're doing the doing the migration wow so like, so like flying by the seat of your pants and just kind of like doing it as you go learning as you go and then delivering it as you go yeah um, but you know me i'm a learning person uh, i like problem solving so <laughs> loved it yeah, it was great. Long hours, you know, long days, um, very um, tense conversations and, you know, having to give really frank reality checks to the exec around what we can and cannot do within the timescales and managing their expectations was, wasn't easy. Uh, right. it, it really isn't easy. And, you know, you have to do it in a way that gives them confidence that, yep, we got a problem, but, you know, Sham's going to fix it. So was that, was that, would you say that's one of the top three or even higher up in terms of the most sort of challenging and rewarding sort of career achievements? Yeah, I think my time at post office was, was probably, you know, up there. I mean, GlaxoSmithKline was by far the, the best yeah, uh, right. company I've worked for. But um, yeah, post office definitely up there, mainly from a point of view of um, the learnings that I got from uh, the the projects that I worked on but yeah. also the people I met you know met people like Andrew uh, you know Andrew Lewis came to work for me at yeah. one point and while I was there so yeah you know really really great great teams and great people and yeah. great service absolutely absolutely so 
with that with that role working there, you also came part of um, poems as post office um, ethnic minorities. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, I think I, I would say that until. I started working at post office and sort of got involved in um, ethnic minority um, issues. I hadn't really appreciated it um, from a career perspective. Um, appreciated what? Sorry, hadn't appreciated. Well, I hadn't appreciated any form of um, you know disadvantage at all. You know, I, I would have said really, you know, there was no real issue. It's all mm. about the individual and yeah, you know, yeah. how how they um you know make, how, make how they, yeah how they how they manage themselves and how you know how how they push through some of these issues. And um, my experience of doing all my degrees and taking that chip off my shoulder was great. But what I hadn't realized is that I still do have this little chip on my shoulder about being black and about being a woman um, and that is also about my upbringing you know yeah. having been brought up in a West Indian family um, you know my father especially was always about you know you've got to work harder than your white counterparts you've got to you know you've got to be smarter than them so you, you well. it thinks yeah. into your psyche 100%. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but in in getting involved in the poem network at post office um, and you know really raising some of the issues around um, institutional um, systems of unequal power if I can put it that way yeah. it, um, it was, was eye-opening really um, and it started with my with my work at, at post office and right. uh, you know I've continued it since but you know what what I, I think what I realized is that um, you know being white, you cannot appreciate the challenges someone who is not white mm. has. I, yeah. I use the word not white because I don't like the word, the term bane. Um, but non-whites um, have a different um, experience than white people in the workplace. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and it was difficult having conversations about this. And we, we had many, many um, networking groups and 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 sessions set up called let's talk about race and you know everyone you know had some really great exec sponsors sitting in but they never really got it and yeah. I think it's very very hard because um, white people feel that if we talk about racism it's too emotive a subject you know racism is thought of as being evil as being yeah, dark right. and very, being very explicit but it's, 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 it's systemic, it's just become a way of life. Do you know what I mean? So that they, you know, as a white person, to, to see it as, okay, yeah, it's there, but I'm not racist, so it's okay. But, but they don't understand that they may, not, they may not be racist, but the next person might be, and also the processes that are in the organisation could be historically racist as well. But, so, but why would they notice that? Why would they feel that? Because they're not being judged or, or they're not feeling or, or experiencing it so it's difficult for them to kind of relate and um, and also there's a lot of black people that have been very very successful and, and will continue to be successful but there could have been a lot more and the ones that don't achieve certain things are perhaps facing racism that's systemic that is preventing them and it affects their confidence um, it can affect their career aspirations I mean do, do you agree with me on that on that front 
Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I had struggled with it in the early days when I started really getting into to grips with it. But you know, as I said, I'm, I'm a learner and I look at problem and I think, you know, what is the real problem here? Uh, you know, because yes, we don't have the Ku Klux Klan walking the streets of London, you know, that just doesn't exist. So there isn't that explicit racism. If you look across organizations and you can see as you go up through hierarchies, no matter how many non-whites you have at lower levels, you start to go up the chain and, you know, it's it's completely sparse and no existence. So you don't have any role models um, that are non-white going up. No no black CEOs. I mean, I've touched on it before on the podcast. No black CEOs at the top in the FTSE 100 companies. I mean, there was one that kind of recruited. He's now moved on. Uh, But yeah, definitely the the, the C-suite needs more individuals uh, of colour, not just black, it could be Asian, Chinese, whatever, just more ethnic individuals, you know, at that level and more females. And, uh, so, so just just on that point, so here, here's the problem then. So, you know, if you look through historical time, mm-hmm. yeah, there has been changes in constitutional and institutional systems of inequality. So back in the, uh, you know, the 18th and 19th century, workers or anyone from a working class background could not vote. It wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that working class people actually got the right to vote. And the only reason they got the right to vote was because the gentle folks, so the people who had titles, allowed them the right to vote. And that was only men. Begrudgingly, probably. Uh, Yeah, only men. So maybe women weren't allowed to vote. Men. Women didn't get the right to vote until um, the early 20th century, you know, in the 1920s. And only they got the right to vote because men allowed them the right to vote. So is that, is that in England you're talking about? Or are you talking about just, just like general... England in the in the US as well. In the US, right. I think, it, I can't remember what the actual date was, 19, uh, 1918, I think it was. Um, but yeah, so, so there are clear changes in constitutional mm. powers that, that make it right for people who are, have unequal um, mm. power. When you start to look at non-white, you know, we have slavery right through to, you know, through the 19th century. In yep. the 20th century, you had uh, the um, you, uh, human rights um, activists and, um, you know, we, we obviously got the right to vote and we, we got further rights in constitutions. But in institutions themselves, in companies, the people of power in companies tend to be white men. Mm. Yeah. And they have a unconscious preference to promote people who are like them. And that's just yeah. natural because, you know, if, you, if I talk to any of my colleagues now, white colleagues, they would say yeah, that I would probably say 90% of them don't have anyone who is non-white in their social networks. No, that's right. Yeah, it's really funny that. I was having a conversation about something yesterday, but um, a lot of white people that, that, I, that are in the corporate world weren't born in the southeast. They might have been born, say, in Gloucestershire or whatever, and there's no black people there. Do you know what I mean, so they've got, they don't have any connection apart from seeing Trevor McDonald and on the news and Lenny Henry and or whatever, and you know, and um, you know, John Barnes as a footballer. Um, mm. you know, there's no beyond that. There isn't much of a, a attachment to somebody from, from within the black community. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. So, 
so if we looked at racism as a system of, une, uh, of um, um, institutional power, unequal power, then absolutely it exists because we can, we've only just got to look around. It's not a myth, it absolutely yeah. exists. But it's, it can't be used in that emotive way that if you're, if you're racist or you, you, you're living in racism um, in, a, in an organisation that doesn't promote people who are non-white or doesn't have people who are non-white on their boards or on their execs, then it doesn't mean that, you know, you are a bad person. It just means you have an unconscious bias to work with people who you like to work with and, and you I, feel comfortable with. Definitely, but I, I, you know, but yeah, I love, you know, but right now with the spotlight, what's kind of going on with, you know, equality, diversity and inclusion, those individuals should be um, approached with a comfortable scenario or, or an opportunity for them to get it out there in the open and to have those uncomfortable conversations um, that feel as though they're not going to get their heads ripped off, and but they've got, they've got to be they've got to be open to, open for change. I mean, it's going to help their businesses going forward to be more inclusive, and so it's approaching those individuals with a solution to like a needs analysis, scoping it all out, to kind of understand how those uncomfortable conversations can happen. I mean, that's where you know I think change can happen because those individuals start at the top at the C-suite, the director level, then it will trickle down. Um, but it's just getting in, getting in front of those individuals. Uh, but some of them are dinosaurs, and some of them aren't going to want change. And I mean, some of those individuals don't even want change from a digital transformation perspective, in terms of growing their business and evolving their businesses. So never mind from a, a race perspective. But I mean, but those conversations definitely, definitely need to need to need to need to, uh, need to start happening. And, yeah, uh, I mean, ch change is difficult, as you say, whether it's you're doing a digital transformation or or whether you're um, introducing more diversity into your workplace. It is difficult, but it has to be managed. And I don't think it can just happen on its own. No, that's right. And yeah. it does start with having very open and frank conversations. And I, I hate it when people come up to me and say, yeah, I don't see colour, you know. But, I mean, that, that, that is, it, you know, it's well, well, it's, it's well-intentioned, but it's actually, I find oh, it really yeah. offensive because yeah, by its very nature, people see differences. That's how socialism works. Yeah, We're all different. And I think... I know what they mean, the, the intent's there, but it's like, well, think about what you actually said then. So why are you speaking to me then? I mean, why are you raising this subject? So it depends, yeah, you know, I think the, the good intent is there from that person. Well, the, they're in... <laughs> Their intent is that you are different to me, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. And that, that is offensive to me because my view is white is also a race. And if white people do not see that, there is that that's where the problem lies. And you know, if we if we all treat each other as different, but we embrace that difference. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the ideal, isn't it? That's the ideal. Yeah. That's the ideal, that's the pinnacle. Yeah, but it starts with the mindset. A white person has to see themselves as different. Yeah. They have to see themselves. Well, you know, Sharon is different to me. You know, yeah. we're different like each other. But it's cool, but, but you know. And it's fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a different way of thinking. So when you start doing transformation, and I'm, I'm having this conversation in, in um, IMI where I work now, it's all about the mindset. And yeah. we need, and, and you know, I love IMI, you know, and I just think they're such an amazing company that's really driving that sort of 
inclusion and diversity element. Wow, good. And their, their view is that we all have a different way of thinking. Let's embrace it. That's their starting point. Yeah, yeah. Be open to other people's opinions and views. Yeah, oh, and, yeah. And, and they act on it in meetings. So it, we have an e etiquette in our meetings, although it's all on teams, but we make sure everyone has had a, a, a something to say. And we always check in. So we, we have these stop gaps and say, check in with people. Are you okay with that? Like you raised your eyebrow there. What, what was you thinking at that point? So really yeah. observing how people, yeah. yeah, it's great. Because I'm sure the outcome is better, right? The outcome's fantastic. Definitely. The outcome is yeah, much better. People to, to be that way, inclined. Yeah. You know, kind of going forward, definitely. It's really, really funny. Can I get on that point? I've got to tell you this. I've got to share this on the podcast. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I'm doing some work with BPIC, which is a black professional in construction. They're not recruitment guys. So I'm kind of helping them out with some recruitment, some relationships with some employers within the construction industry that are kind of opening up their sort of um, ED&I, diversity and inclusion um, strategies. Anyway, I've chatted to a company. I can't say who it is, but a massive billion-dollar company based in the UK. Chatting to their head of talent um, person, HR head of talent person, and I think she's from the LGBT community as well. And we were talking to her about the increasing the level of people of color or of ethnic backgrounds in the corporation, in their business. And she said, she said well, what they do, she said part of their advertising campaigns um, includes um, advertising to, to the black communities, to homeless people, and to people that just come out of prison. So, and she, in one foul swoop, that's how she kind of like said it. So, so um, it wasn't nothing about, you know, well, middle management we do this but to get more uh, people of color into our middle management or whatever she just collectively said homeless people coming out of prison and to get some black paper and i was like taken back and and i was on the call with amos and he's my witness that this happened and we were both just like and it was just I'm, I'm real how you know it's just yeah they're black so they can go into the campaign that we get for homeless people anyone's coming out of prison you know it's, just, it's the same comes out the same budget the same pot and I'm, I was just, yeah. wow, man, you know, and um, just unbelievable to hear that. And yeah. a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of work to do. You know what I mean, but I do think that the dial is turning in the right direction. Yeah. And um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting. It, it is. It is turning. But I think we need allies. You know, white allies. Well, allies, hundred percent. Yeah. Just yeah. like you know, poor people or working class people had um, upper class people as allies to get them the vote. Just like yeah. women had men as allies to get them the vote. We need white people definitely. as allies to help. Don't mind that. Definitely, without a doubt, 100% yeah. it's not gonna happen if we're not in the position of influence, um, of volume, number of people are in a position of, in, black people aren't, there's not enough of us in positions of influence to make that change. And yeah. you know, we need you know, those individuals to do so. But great, Karen, Sharon, man, I could talk to you for hours. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> but so, um, listen, also, look, over the last year or two, um, the Digital Hub has been really well supported and um, with the podcasts and also with the YouTube views, etc. cetera, kind of going up daily, weekly. Uh, not massive, but we're getting there. And um, so it's, it's a bit of a platform. So, look, I'm just conscious of running out of time. So is, is there anything that you want to say um, that... Now you've got this little bit of an audience about you, about what you want to do. Is there anything you want to kind of get out there and say about that yourself? Yeah, I, I, for me, um, I mean, you know, we didn't really touch on digital, but, you know, I absolutely am such a big advocate of um, technology um, um, transformation. But digital is really about how you connect with people. And 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm advocating at um, IMI that our focus really has to be on how we manage our engagements with not just with our employees, but with our customers, with our partners and suppliers. Um, and it's all using digital capabilities to be able mm. to do that. And data for me is king in all of this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer on you get the right data, you analyze it well, you get great insights from it. Um, but also you can use it to do machine learning and to do um, artificial intelligence and really yeah. get predictive analytics going. So yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, that that's really my championing bit for the next umpteen years. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to learn, learn more about that. I mean, seeing that whole data science piece and AI, but even from like seven or eight years ago, the, the value of data, you know, you can't refuse it. You can't deny it, the power of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one, one of the problems that I think people have when they think digital is it's going to take away my job, you know, all my manual high touch processes that I'm currently used to doing, it's going to be taken over now by these machines. But, you know, McKinsey wrote a report um, a, a while ago saying that for every job lost, 2.6 roles are created. So people need to be a lot more open minded just changing their, yeah, their using it to evolve yeah. themselves and their businesses exactly. or their careers. And, and data is the big thing data and security are the two uh, 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 the, the two sides of the coin for digital superb superb wonderful wonderful okay we're gonna wrap it up in a minute but listen before we do that i've got a little quick fire round of questions here okay, okay. Uh, and um so yeah put your seatbelt on okay uh, nothing too scary i promise you nothing too scary so what, what's in your your iTunes right now? What, what are you listening to on the Spotify or Apple Tunes? What's your... Uh, oh, gosh. Um, what's on my... Jam? Um, I listen to all sorts of music, but um, I, I think this morning, actually, um, and it, I can't get the tune out of my head, Prince, Purple Rain. Oh, it's really? Just yeah. yeah, that was what I was playing on loud. Every time I'm, I'm getting ready for work, I put music on. Um, but I, I tend to have a, a mix... A Spotify list, a playlist that's amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was from um, Timeless Lovers Songs or something. So any, so any particular genre that you'd like to listen to, your favourite genre of music? Oh, um, R&B, obviously. You know, I brought up oh, an R&B yeah. and Motown as well. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah, those yeah. Are my big. Aretha Franklin is my queen. Oh, she was my queen, yeah. Fell to out those tunes, can't you, Aretha? Yeah. Wow, it's awesome, it's awesome. What, 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 what app are you using the most at the moment on your phone? What app, your favourite app right now? Um, oh, actually, my <laughs> much to the disgust of my husband, it's an app called Sleep Score. Oh, <laughs> yeah, what it's is, an app called Sleep Score, and it's it monitors your sleep pattern, and it tells you because there's a number of stages, there's six stages of sleep. I won't go into it now, but it I was concerned that I wasn't getting enough REM sleep, which is like a deep level of sleep. Oh, really? Uh, and it actually measures it, and it's brilliant. I love it. I, I how does it, it? How, it hook you up? Do you have to have something? It uses Sona technology, um, and it, it it um you just it's on your on your phone. You you leave it running, plugged in, um to power on your on your um, bedside cabinet. In a, at an angle towards you, right? Um, it, it monitors a certain distance around you, so it doesn't catch my husband. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's yeah, and it, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, sleep on the sport. iPhone. It's on the iPhone. Is it as an app? Yeah, it's on the iPhone. It's okay. on the iPhone. Yeah, well, you bought it as an app, or is it actually come on the phone itself? I bought it as an app. Oh right, okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I actually subscribed to it. I think it's about fifty pounds right. subscription for a year, so I subscribed to it. 
Wow, man, I'm not asking that. Stuff's so clever now, isn't it? It's mental, mental. It is. And Sleep is very important. I have to tell everyone that. Oh, without a doubt. I don't need telling you about that. Yeah, it's true. It is. Yeah. It helps. You've got to get you six, seven hours. I reckon six, six hours minimum a day. Quality sleep. It's not just about the duration. It's how, the quality of the sleep. So right. you know, it helps with your brain, the way you think, um, your your um, problem solving techniques. All of that is all down to how well you've slept. Definitely. Yeah. Do, do you find as though when you've had a good night's sleep, but in the morning you're kind of you're kind of more alert and switched on first thing to kind of get yeah. Absolutely. And I have my morning routine. I have an hour and a half morning routine that I get up and do and I literally bounce out of bed and I've got my ideas. I journal what I'm going to be doing for the day. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I'll do that in the morning as well. Just kind of get it all back in place, synchronising my head of what I'm doing first. And I go straight in the office, write them down. And uh, yeah, I'm like you, drive my missus mad in terms of like, you know, what I'm like in the morning. But it's just, yeah. just got me done. It's got me done. What, what's your favourite tipple? Favourite drink? Uh, um, at the moment, it's French martini. I, I'm French yeah, French martini. It's pineapple juice, vodka, and a um, raspberry liqueur called Chambord. I know Chambord, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I sound so, very kind of like um, exquisite and very kind of like, you know. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love that. Very summery, very, very summery kind of drink. Fantastic. And then, so over the, the lockdown period, lockdown one, etc. Did you kind of get into like Netflix or did you kind of watch anything particular? Like, I, I watched Ozark and loved it. Uh, Power, I loved that as well. And remember Hunted on Channel 4, Channel 5, where they kind of go around and they, they get people, groups of people get hunted by other people, by this like um, special task force that are in an office somewhere. So what was your little bubble on TV? Anything at all? Um, Line of Duty, absolutely loved Line of Duty. Really got into that. Um, the Crown. Oh yeah, yeah, I've done yeah, that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really got into the Crown, and I, and as I said, because I'm a historian, I love yeah. looking back at past history. I know it's all fiction, as they keep telling us, but, yeah, but <laughs> I think there's too, too many good things happen. The storylines you can relate to the storylines in terms of the individuals' personalities. Yeah, so it's definitely. Obviously, it's not 100 accurate, but I mean, I think that was a really good insight. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, cool. And then, what's your favourite holiday destination been, or would you like to go? Um, actually, a couple of years ago, uh, we were in South Africa, Cape Town. Um, absolutely loved it. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been there. Great, yeah. yeah. But Barbados, obviously, is my top number one destination. Love Barbados. Yeah. And then the 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 the, um, the other place in Europe is Italy. Oh, right. I've not been. I've been there. Yeah, yeah uh, honestly, it, it is it is superb. The Italian people, the food, the scenery, the the weather—it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, I do like, I do like seeing it on TV actually, like all around Lake Como around there. Around yeah, there? Lake Como, and even down as you go further down the south um, is, is Capri, and yeah, it's just the Amalfi Coast. It, it's just an amazing place. Yeah, I need to go. I need to go. I don't know why I've not been to Italy. I've been to a lot of time around Europe, France, Spain, Germany, Belgium, Holland, etc. I've just not been to Italy. So Italy far. I've been to all those places. Italy far outweighs. Outweighs it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Super. Yeah. Sharon, that's it. We are done. I mean, we have no, great. That's gone quick. I know. I, I said to you like this before. You minutes. We've done an hour. Right. You know what I mean, um, it's been great. Honestly, you've been a wonderful guest. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much. And okay. um, and yeah, let's kind of let's kind of do it again in the near future. Excellent. Doubt.